0: value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henninger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, hit the like button on this video and any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. Today, we're going to talk about terminal value and intrinsic value, and what I want to do is answer the question that I have heard many times before, which is why does intrinsic value grow over time? Now, there's a few different variations of this question, but it generally follows along this line of reasoning. If intrinsic value is the net present value of all future cash flows then why would it change when you go one year into the future? Shouldn't it stay the same since you've estimated those cash flows for all future years? Why does moving from one year into the future change intrinsic value? And so there's a few different ways to answer this question. But I really wanna dive into why intrinsic value grows over time and to do that, we're gonna have to spend some time talking about terminal value. So, why does intrinsic value grow over time? Well, the first answer is it doesn't. The natural way of framing the question does still lead you to say that intrinsic value is fixed. But the key point is that your estimate of intrinsic value will change. And so the idea here being is, is that the intrinsic value of a stock isn't changing, but because all you're doing when you calculate an intrinsic value, you estimate an intrinsic value, you do some sort of valuation process, you don't know the future, you can't see into the future, you don't have a crystal ball, so all you're doing is you're providing an estimate. And that estimate is liable to be wrong because you aren't, because it's almost impossible to be exactly right about what the future will hold. Even if you knew a company was going to liquidate at $100 per share, you don't know the exact date that that liquidation would occur, and you can't say with 100% certainty that it would occur on that date. And simply being liquidated on one date versus the next date would result in a different intrinsic value because you're forced to to discount those cash flows back to the present. So you can look at it that intrinsic value isn't changing, but your estimate of intrinsic value changes. Well, okay, but that's not really helpful because in general, your estimate is what is colloquially known as intrinsic value. People know intrinsic value and inherently understand it to be an estimate. So the second answer is that intrinsic value does change, but it decreases over time. It doesn't increase. So I'm framing the question today about, like, why does intrinsic value grow over time? And with the types of companies you want to be buying, that is what you want to see, intrinsic value getting higher. You don't necessarily want to focus on companies where intrinsic value can shrink or stay the same. So, But the natural inclination should be that If intrinsic value is the net present value of all future cash flows, well, by receiving one year's worth of cash flows, the intrinsic value should have dropped by that year's cash flows because now those cash flows have gone onto the balance sheet and maybe they've been received as dividends, maybe they've been received as buybacks, but those cash flows no longer exist for future investors. They're only available for past investors. So if you were to look at intrinsic value one year in the future, that intrinsic value does not include the intrinsic value for this year. So it should drop. And it would drop if there was no expectation of any additional cash flow growth or any additional cash flow changes. But cash flows do change. So now we have to talk about our assumptions, and this is where I think it gets key, and we need to think about how estimating an intrinsic value happens. So I've done some podcast episodes before about valuation, about using discounted cash flow calculations, and the theoretically proper way to determine the value of a company is to perform a discounted cash flow um, valuation process which means you need to know your discount rate. You need to estimate gr- estimate growth. You need to know the current cash flows and that growth that allows you to predict future cash flows. And then you're also going to have a terminal valuation piece because you need to know, one, what is the growth rate for the period of time that you're able to forecast? And two, what is the growth rate for all of time into the future? Because even though you can't estimate future growth 50 years out, 100 years out, the value of a company includes cash flows 50 years out, 100 years out. So you need to have some ability to estimate what those numbers will be. And one way to do that is that you're going to both have a growth rate. Let's say, for example, you're going to estimate the growth rate of a company for the next five years. And then after that, you'll have a separate growth rate for years 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, all the way down into 50, 100, 2000. So that growth rate will be known as the terminal growth rate. So now you have a growth rate for your forecast period and a growth rate for your terminal um, period, your terminal growth rate. And the key point here is that when you're developing a valuation model, Whether it's a simple model that you can do on a napkin or it's a complex model you're doing in a spreadsheet like Excel, that model is going to assume two different growth rates. It's highly unlikely those growth rates are going to be the same. And if they are different, the growth rate over the next five-year period is likely to be a higher growth rate than the terminal growth rate. For instance… Let's say you think the earnings of your company are going to grow at 10% a year for the next five years. So then your current forecast growth rate would be 10% per year, and you forecast that for the next five years. But you don't think it's possible that the company can grow 10% a year forever. Instead, you use a more reasonable number as a terminal growth rate. And that terminal growth rate might be 3%. Because, okay, maybe inflation is going to be 2 two to 3%, and the company should be able to grow at least with the inflation rate. So this would be a reasonable way to do it. So now what you have is you have a growth rate for years 1 through 5 of 10%, and you have growth rates for 10 years 6 through infinity at 3%. That gap is one of the key ways that intrinsic value will grow over time. Because what's happening is that as you move one year into the future, so I'm recording this in 2020. You might listen to it in 2020 or 2021. But as we move from 2020 to 2021, the year one growth will happen. And let's say I was right and the company grew 10%. So now that 10% growth rate occurred, But what also is going to happen is that year two is going to move to be the next year one in our model. Year three is going to become year two. Year four is going to become year three. Year five is going to become year four. But most importantly, year six is going to become year five. And now, let's say we're still able to project the future five years out. And we still think a 10% growth rate is expected. What have we done? Well, we have turned year six originally, which we originally estimated. So let's say it's it's right now 2020. So year six might be the um, 2025 to 2026. So year 2025. So in our first valuation, we estimated that growth during 2025 would be 3%. But because it's now 2021, we're now estimating that growth during 2025 is going to be 10%. And that change from 3% growth to 10% growth is a 7% gap. And that 7% gap is what leads to growth in the intrinsic value. And it means that over time... If you're estimating intrinsic value using a discounted cash flow model that includes a terminal growth period, like almost all valuations do, your intrinsic value will grow as the terminal growth rate is transformed into the forecasted growth rate because there's typically a gap between those two numbers. And this gap is really important because it's not unreasonable for a company with pricing power to be able to grow at an inflation rate for an infinite time into the future. Because basically that says that they're almost almost—they're practically not growing. Yes, the cash flows are higher each year, but since it's only going up with inflation, they're not taking greater market share. Their market share is constant. Their margins are constant. Um, Their profitability ratios are all constant. The debt and and everything else is constant. So nothing's changing, which means it's not growing to some obscene value that's impossible. It's a possible number for you to match inflation. And so if you're talking about an infinite future, you really have to avoid using a number that's higher than inflation or higher than the GDP growth rate. Because if you do estimate an infinite growth that exceeds the growth rate of the total economy then you're estimating that at some point in the future this company will be larger than the entire world economy which doesn't make any sense so you have to be very careful about making sure to choose a slow a relatively slow and a relatively small terminal growth rate so everything i just said there is reasonable this is what people do when they're doing valuations this is the professional Accurate way in which to do evaluation, but although it's reasonable, it has some inherent flaws. Because if you can expect intrinsic value to grow over time, why wouldn't you include that in your valuation process? Well, part of it's conservative, right? So you're trying to understand that it's better not to try and forecast the future with really high growth rates because any forecast of the future, even if you're only forecasting one month in advance or one year in advance, is fraught with tons of uncertainty. So if you're every additional year that you forecast in the future is exponentially more difficult to get right. So it's exponentially more difficult to forecast six years in the future than it is five. And it's unheard of more difficult to forecast 10 years instead of five, or 20 years instead of five. It's not a linear progression. Each additional year compounds on itself and the difficulty needed to accurately forecast it. So it makes sense to be conservative and use a small growth rate number for your terminal growth rate. But. Intelligent investors can take advantage of this circumstance. What you want to do when you're trying to narrow companies down in your watch list is you want to identify the companies that can violate this principle. You want to identify the companies where a normal terminal growth rate is going to heavily underestimate their future growth. There is a substantial difference between a company that can grow at 10% a year for the next five years and a company that can grow at 10% of the year for the next 20 years. And although it might be hard to accurately estimate that a company can grow 10% a year for the next 20 years, if you can find those companies, then when you buy in you're basically receiving a quality premium for that investment because the high quality nature of that company and the ability to reinvest their capital at high rates of return in order to continue that growth for a long period of time means that every additional year is going to see people adjust their intrinsic value higher to take into account the fact that the company is for lack of a better term, outperforming their own projections because no one's willing to forecast exact numbers 20 years out. You're trying to find companies that can fill that gap. So if you have a gap like the one we said where you're forecasting 10% short-term growth and 3% long-term growth, you want to find the companies that Let's say you have two companies that are both have short term earnings growth of 10% a year. You want to try and do everything you can to figure out which one of those companies is going to have that growth last longer. Because if they can grow at 10% a year for an extra five to 10 years, the added shareholder value is humongous in compared to the company that can only grow for that five years. They don't even have to grow at 10% a year. If they can grow at 6 to 8% a year for an additional 20 years, instead of that 3% terminal growth, now you're capturing that 6 to 8% growth. And that additional value is substantial if you were to actually run that intrinsic value calculation over such a long period of time. So I'm not advising that you change the way you use a discounted cash flow model. It's prudent to use a low terminal valuation terminal growth number. But ideally, you use a terminal low terminal growth number and you find companies that are going to have a higher growth than the number you estimate because that's going to be a positive surprise for you in achieving your targeted rate of return down the line. So this is one way in which you can improve your margin of safety. So what are the types of companies that can do this? So my, one of my favorite examples that I've seen about this type of thing is like Hershey's. So Hershey is a company that's been around, I think it's over 100 years now in the United States. They produce chocolate. Um, if you're not aware of the, the Hershey brand, um, they're quite famous in the United States, but they're, they're less so outside of the United States. Um, But this company is able to produce almost its entire product, I think, from one factory in Pennsylvania, Um, but I think it's just one factory. And they produce chocolate, and because chocolate has such a strong branding position and um, pricing power, they've been able to grow at rates like 8% a year for decades and decades and decades, So this is the type of company that the inflation rate of the general economy is likely to be lower than the inflation rate of chocolate because chocolate is primarily purchased around holidays, holidays like Valentine's Day, holidays um, like Easter or Christmas or stuff like that. So if you're giving someone chocolate on Valentine's Day, you're not really looking at the price because your significant other that is receiving the chocolate is going to want their preferred type of chocolate regardless of the price. Because if you get the wrong brand, they're not going to be happy. So you're going to buy the, wrong, the correct brand – regardless of what the price raise was from the year before. So this is the type of company that can grow volume, let's say 3% a year every year, and grow sales price 5% a year every year. So they're able to grow their sales at the same time that they grow their prices. And this combination leads to very high growth rates over time and improving margins and all sorts of things like that. So you have a company that has high returns on capital and can reasonably expect for a long period of time in the future to be able to raise their prices at above the rate of inflation. What does that mean? That means very high-quality companies like Hershey, very high-quality companies that have this long-term pricing power, are likely to be perpetually undervalued because the average person when doing a valuation on the company is going to use a terminal growth rate that is lower than their actual long-term growth rate. And it's not that they're making a mistake. It's just that by doing so, the valuation is necessarily going to be less than the actual net present value of all future cash flows because the future cash flows are likely to be substantially higher than they estimate. So why does this work? Well, It works because what's really happening is that as each year passes, I'm going to use a a gaming term here for you, uh, the fog, or this is a military term, the fog of war um, that is the future is becoming illuminated. So, In war, there's this concept called fog of war that you can't see the battlefield except for the areas that you've explored. Now, this has become less relevant in modern times now that you have satellites and and, and planes and you can do reconnaissance um, with with aerial forces. Um, But historically, if you didn't have – you would not know what your enemy was doing on the battlefield until you went to – you know, and looked for them. So you didn't necessarily know where your opponent's armies were. And so it produced a lot of uncertainty in military planning. Well, the same is true in investing. You don't know the future until you enter the future. So what's happening is that as each year passes, we can now see the future, because you're in the future. So if you go forward from 2020 to 2021, you can now see the results of 2021 because you're living through them. Likewise, if when you go to 2022, you can now see the future and see what's happening in 2022 because it's not your future anymore, it's the present. So what's happening is is as you move into the future, it's easier to forecast further ahead than you were able to before. This means that your estimate of intrinsic value is going to become more accurate over time because some of the years that were previously an estimate are now actual fact. So, for instance, let's say you estimated, you know, 10% growth the next five years, but in year one, growth was 12%. So now you know exactly what the growth was in year 1. You don't have to estimate it. So you only have to estimate years 2 through infinity. And that extra insert, the extra certainty means that your cash flows have one grown faster than you expected, in 2 are exactly what you know they them to be now that they have occurred. So your uncertainty has dropped and the there was outperformance as well. So what you're really doing here is you're moving a year from inside the terminal value range to within the forecast range. And that process is a driving force that drives intrinsic value calculations higher over time. Now, this only applies for companies that are growing. Obviously, if a company is shrinking. Um, it could still have a similar effect, but... Um, it's harder to use these type of calculations. Most of them are using some sort of Gordon growth type model, um, some sort of perpetual growth in the future beyond a terminal value date. Um, and so if they're, if you're using a different type of calculation, that's, it'll be a little different. But basically, as you move those years into the forecast range, you're getting greater clarity, lower uncertainty, and higher growth rates built in. So... Before I move on to this next part, I really want to key in on terminal value. So terminal value is really important here. So we need a good definition for terminal value. You see, terminal value is supposed to be the net present value of all future cash flows discounted back to a specific year in the future. So in our example, terminal value is the value of the entire company from year six to infinity. Well, what does that mean? How is that different from the term from the intrinsic value from year zero to infinity? Well, the answer is it's not. What your what terminal value actually is is terminal value is your estimate of the intrinsic value five years in the future. So, terminal value is nothing different than intrinsic value, except the present intrinsic value is the combination of the future intrinsic value for five years from now, plus all of the cash flows in between. So all you're doing is you're saying normally you're at you for the next five years, you're taking each year one at a time. You're saying cash flows are $1 million this year, $1.1 million next year, $1.2 million the year after, $1.3 million the year after that. Those are all discounted back to the present at a $1 million a year. So my next five years are worth cumulatively $5 million in intrinsic value, but the terminal value is is $50 million, and to add those together, I get my intrinsic value of $55 million. But all we're really doing is we're estimating the future intrinsic value. Because terminal value, that's all it is. Terminal value is the intrinsic value, except instead of discounting back to the present, you're discounting back to the future. And this is where it can get a little wonky, because what happens here is you're basically saying for that future period, so let's say now we're going to jump all five years into the future at once, instead of going one year at a time, now we're replacing all five years of terminal value growth rate with forecasted value growth rate. And so you have this major driving force, which is pushing the terminal value up because you keep making these substitutions on years. So I think this is a really key point to understand that terminal value is your estimate of the intrinsic value of a stock 5, 10, 20 years in the future, because sometimes people don't have that breakthrough, that terminal value and intrinsic value are really the same thing. But I want to introduce a concept that I've seen talked about on very few places elsewhere. And for me, it's really useful because I think it really helps you understand the future. If you, It helps you to understand forecasting the future if you understand what it would have been like to forecast in the past. So here I'm going to use the, introduce the concept to you called true historic value. Um, I'm still trying to work on branding on how I'm going to name this, um, but I think this, this is kind of how I think about it. And so true historic value is instead of going into the future, let's go into the past, and let's choose a big and you know big name company, something like Walmart, and you're going to say, okay, at what price should I have paid for a share of Walmart thirty years ago in order to have returned ten percent a year from thirty years ago to today? And this is my true historic value. So basically, my intrinsic value is the price I can pay today in order to earn a 10% rate of return in the future. But your true historic value is the price you could have paid historically to earn a 10% rate of return up to today. And this is really key because what you're going to see is that one's estimate, of historic value in the, uh, one's estimate of intrinsic value in the past, four types of companies like a Walmart, like a Hershey, like an Apple, like companies like this that are high quality, that are growing quickly, those two numbers are going to be drastically different. For instance, let's take Walmart again and talk 30, 40 years ago what would be a reasonable P.E. ratio that you might have assigned in terms of intrinsic value? Well, you might have said that Walmart's high quality, Walmart's growing well, so maybe Walmart should be worth a P.E. ratio of 25 or a P.E. ratio of 20 or a P.E. ratio of 30. So now you say, okay, you know, it's, it's, that's high-end, that, that's really ascribing a lot of quality to Walmart to say it's worth a P.E. of 30. Okay. But what do you think the true historic value might have been when we go back 30, 40 years? Well, it may tell you that the growth was so high for so long, and it was so so much higher than you would have expected when you did your intrinsic value calculation, that the historic value that you should have paid for Walmart 40 years in the past was maybe 80 times earnings or 100 times earnings. And that by paying 80 times earnings, you would have been able to earn a 10% annual return in the future. Now, no one would have ever advised you to pay 80 times earnings because it doesn't have any margin of safety. But when we're time traveling and we're going back into the past, we don't need margin of safety because we already know the future. We've already been there. We've already done that. So because we know the future, you can eliminate the need for a margin of safety, and you can just punch in all of the cash flows as they've been received. We know all the cash flows. We know how much growth has occurred, and we know what the stock price is today. Well, the stock price today is today's terminal value if you're to look 40 years in the past, which means this framework is important for you when you're forecasting the future because it tells you. If you were to do a bunch of examples of these, and I hope to do some case studies in the future looking at companies that have since liquidated, looking at companies that maybe have gone bankrupt, um, stuff like Kodak, um, Sears, and different companies like this, especially the ones that have had like – Spin offs and liquidations to show you that the price over time that you could have paid for many companies, especially ones that are still around, especially ones that are still growing, is probably higher than you expect because it's going to tell you that the high quality companies are perpetually undervalued if they're able to sustain their growth rates over long periods of time. And this is true in large part due to survivorship bias, not every company is going to last, but the ones that do last are going to show that the ability to sustain those returns on capital, the ability to sustain those growth rates, necessitates that the true value you should have been willing to pay is substantially higher than the intrinsic value that you would calculate. And so when we think about this in the future, if we think about today in 2020, and you estimate the intrinsic value for a company, when you make that intrinsic value estimate today in 2020, and we fast forward 30 years into the future, and say it's 2050, now you know the future, now you've known 30 years of what's happened. Well, you would be able to go back to today and say, how right was I? And if the company's high quality, if the company's a good high quality company with strong growth, it's almost inevitable that the intrinsic value estimate you made is gonna be substantially lower than the true historic value price. And that gap will narrow over time until eventually they connect to each other in the future on either the date of liquidation or the present, whatever that may be. And so that concept, that over time, As you travel through time, your historic value and your intrinsic value will come to be equal in the present. It is also true for terminal value and intrinsic value in the future. Your terminal value is going to have to adjust and raise your intrinsic value over time until you match and they come equal to each other because when you eliminate the the uncertainty of moving through time, That uncertainty goes away, and now you know the truth of what actually happens, which means your intrinsic value is going to adjust. So as I'm sitting here at the end of this episode, I'm really, I hope that this one's been helpful. This is one of the ways in which I think about investments. I don't think a lot of people are thinking about them in these terms. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But I think it's helpful to me because by using these terms and understanding the interplay between intrinsic value, terminal value, and true historic value, you'll better be able to understand the interplay in the calculations that are going on. All of these variables, all these assumptions matter. And they matter a lot in terms of what cash flows are worth, what you should pay for a company, and it really shows you the value of investing in high-quality stocks. So I'm a high-quality investor. I like to concentrate on my best ideas. And I think this concept is a large reason for that. So thank you for listening to this podcast. The full show notes for this episode will be available, including my outline for today's show, at diyinvesting.org episode 104. If you've gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at diyinvesting.org slash P-A-T-R-O-N. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast.